Afterthought on CKUW 95.9 FM. My name is Erica Weeb. And I'm Lynn Fernandez. We'd love to hear from you. Please email us at afterthought, that's one word, at ckuw.ca. Hello and thanks for tuning in to Afterthought. This recording is being made on March 24th, 2022. And this is part two of a conversation I started last time with Peter Orkington. In the last show, Peter talked about his hockey accident in September of 2017, which left him paralyzed from the chest down and what that transition has been like. Today, we're going to continue that conversation, but also probably touch more on some of the existing barriers than we did last time. So yeah, Peter, I wanted to talk, start by talking about some things that came up in my mind after you, after I talked to you last, last week. And one of them is about terminology. So, I mean, most of the time we can just refer to you as Peter, right? Yeah, that works for me. <laughs> but there may be sometimes contextually where we need to describe your situation. So, like, how do you feel about the word, for example, disabled? Yeah, um, I guess generally, I think language is a pretty personal thing. Um, yeah, I know I know some people who have used crippled as part of their nickname, the term crippled as part of their nickname, and other people who would probably be really offended by that. So I think the most important thing is just to be able to talk to someone and, and respect their preferences. Mm-hmm. Personally, for me, I'm not really bothered by specific words very often if I feel like whoever I'm speaking to is being respectful and asking questions. Um, but I know the term being disabled can make people feel like their disability is defining for them instead yeah. of having a disability. So uh, I can respect that as well. Um, yeah, for me, a disability. I feel like a disability is part of who I am. Um, I am a wheelchair user. I am paraplegic. Um, and I'm comfortable being described in any of those ways. Right. I mean, if somebody says you are paraplegic to me, yeah, that also doesn't bother me. Hmm. To be honest, I feel like uh, a lot of the time, and I'm still relatively new to my recovery I feel like a lot of the time I just don't have the energy I have bigger battles to to choose to fight than than that one. Than language that doesn't really rankle me too much following my accident some of well I learned later that some of the the people around me were pretty cautious in trying to avoid using language like uh, that defined what happened to me as traumatic they avoided the term traumatic huh. um, I think they had read or heard that this could be triggering or or make me confront this reality but and and yeah i think that language again is really personal that that might be important for some people i'm not saying it's not a something that some people might want um but for me that just struck me as kind of ridiculous like of course it's dramatic of course it's it is the yeah most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me yes uh on the other hand i had a, a counselor uh who was talking to me about you know, this doesn't change anything. And that also struck me as ridiculous. Of course it does. It changes everything. And it's not about giving up on being able to overcome barriers, but it seems like somewhat being in denial. Uh, so it's it's really personal. I think the important thing is to 
well, to be able to discuss language with someone and understand what they'd like. Yeah, and I really like the other point that you're making, and you made this point last time too. I mean, you can't speak for other wheelchair users. Everybody's different. Everybody's uh, person, you know, just because they're in the wheelchair doesn't mean that there's a common feeling about things. Well, definitely I've learned. I wouldn't even presume to understand someone else who has a someone else's situation who has a very similar injury to myself because uh, bodies are different too, disabilities are different. Too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I wouldn't even presume to l- understand their disability, let alone how they, how they deal with it. Yeah. Uh, have you talked to other people who, are, who have had this, a similar injury to you? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's been somewhat difficult to talk to people for two years in person, but, but uh, yeah, I've tapped a little bit into the disability community here in Winnipeg and especially uh, online. Um, I would prefer to be in person, but um, yeah, it's been kind of forced to be online more, and uh, that's been really helpful for just practical tips and uh, encouragement and uh, yeah, lots of lots of things. Where to look for equipment, different things you can try. Um, yeah. Okay, and after we were done last time, you mentioned shoot, I forgot to mention what one of my friends said to me, and so here's your opportunity. Yeah. Um, yeah, my a friend of mine came out to visit me, and something that really stuck with me was uh, don't don't focus on the top of the mountain, just focus mm-hmm. on planting flowers along the way. Um, I think it's it's got to be the right time for whatever is said to resonate, the right person, uh-huh. the right timing, the right context, the right crisis. Yeah. Um, and for me. Uh, that was just when every every single detail of every day just felt completely overwhelming. That was the mountain. So every time I tried to push myself in want some w- new way, like to just take a shower or uh, to get outside or to cook an egg and reach across the stove, I was just confronted with challenges that I hadn't really, well, I hadn't been able to envision. Um, it felt like one step forward and two steps back and... Every time I gained a bit of hope uh, and energy, it just revealed how much more difficult everything was. So I think part of why that phrase resonated was because I knew my friend was also going through a really rough time and had come out to visit me. I think people who experience trauma or grief um, have a unique capacity to understand those sorts of emotions, even if the details of individual situation aren't completely similar and I knew that my friend was really struggling and still able to to reach out um, so that meant a lot it's a, a phrase that's a lot more meaningful because of that connection and it helped me focus on the possibles of what I could do instead of how hard everything was which was completely overwhelming even if that was just enjoying some sunshine because I was out of the hospital and able to get outside yeah, I, I could slowly find happiness even for a few minutes in a day. Yeah, my mom actually drew a picture, sketched a picture that she gave to me for Christmas of a photo of from when we lived together after I got out of the hospital that's just me sitting out on the balcony in the sun playing guitar. Uh, and I remember, at, yeah, at that point just feeling a bit like a zombie, unable to even look for happiness. But uh, 
that was sort of the beginning little sprouts of these flowers of a few minutes of happiness in a day and mm-hmm. working from there. Mm-hmm. So you've had the opportunity now to wheel around Winnipeg. Uh, we talked last time about the particular difficulties that winter presents mm-hmm. um, when you're in a wheelchair. Uh, I guess the infrastructure-wise, how do you find it? Like, is what's what's Winnipeg doing right in that regard? And then we'll talk about what you know where the where some of the real gaps are as far as helping people in wheelchairs get around. Well, for sure, to begin with, again, I was extremely fortunate. I'm always reminded of how fortunate I was to have coverage through private insurance. Uh, so that makes my situation uh, a little easier in that I, I have the ability to, like I bought a vehicle uh, and modified it with some hand controls, uh, which was huge once I, once I had that, obviously, uh, getting around and out of the city became, well, basically a possibility instead of it just felt like impossible, especially through winter. Mm-hmm. But I know that's definitely not the case for everyone. So for getting around the city, personally, I love I love seeing the bike lanes that are coming up in the city. Um, I use them with that electric hand cycle we talked about last week. Yeah. Because I can kind of fit into the pace of traffic there. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm really excited to check out, I didn't have a chance to check out last year, I wasn't really aware of it, but they put in an accessible dock at the, uh, on the Seine River. Yeah, I'm really excited to, to check that out. Um, I, I really like the forks and the river walk when they're not underwater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd love to see continuation of development of and documentation of accessible trails. I know All Trails has uh, been documenting Accessible, pl- I guess, yeah, the theme is uh, things that ease access and allow access to outdoors and outdoor activities because uh, that's really important for, I think, everyone's general well-being. Mm-hmm. And that's something that felt like the, the ability to get outdoors felt really restricted when I first got out of the hospital. Anything about, like, buildings that you go into or... Yeah, I would say that's not really where Winnipeg's doing a great job. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually know of someone who moved from Winnipeg to San Francisco for a while and uh, was used to just contacting businesses, phoning beforehand before going to a new business or a business he hadn't been to before um, to ask about accessibility and got responses of people just being surprised that he was even calling because you could take that for granted. You didn't have to call ahead. Wow. I think they're quite far ahead um, of us for for general accessibility. Um, And yeah, that's not the case in Winnipeg. I I do call ahead to businesses to ask about accessibility and even to double check with, if if someone claims a place is accessible, to double check, well, is there a step up out front? Is there a small curb? Because... It's it's no slight to people on the phone. It's just you you aren't aware. You don't see that step as keeping people potentially out. Also, accessible is kind of a term that people can use for buildings, but it seems to be somewhat meaningless sometimes in Winnipeg. When I was apartment hunting, places were advertised as accessible, but some of them had stairs and no elevator, like right in the front door, and yeah. some you know, door frames that I didn't even fit through in the first place. So, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky term in Canada. Yeah. 
I know last summer we went to one of these outdoor beer gardens, which sprang up last summer, which was really great. I'm not going to name them because I know that they are aware of this issue and want to fix it. But the place is very accessible for you. I mean, you could get in very easily. You could get to your table very easily. But there was a little platform, no more than a couple of inches high, right in front of the bar. So you could not get up there. Yeah, well, and it's personal again, like, part of what I'm pushing myself to do is, yeah, to learn to hop curbs, but um, that's certainly not something oh. that everyone can do. Well, no. And, uh, yeah, it's true, it should, I hope, I hope Winnipeg, and I know other provinces in Canada have goals of becoming fully accessible within a matter of years, um, so I hope to see that happen. I know, I also... Yeah, outside of a formal requirement for, you know, properly integrated infrastructure. I know other provinces, like, I think it's in PEI, they had a just a simple volunteer program where, and, and donated materials where volunteers constructed these little risers, or little ramps uh, that businesses could go and pick up. Huh. Um, just to get, yeah, if you had a curb but you didn't have money to, to make major changes, you could pick up a simple little little thing that was uh, a little ramp. Um, I, yeah, I think that's important, Finding, knowing that funding is limited, finding creative solutions and uh, individually based or community based solutions mm -hmm. that don't have to be expensive at all but can really facilitate access. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we talked about winter last time and I know that I live in a climate with a lot of snow but I think a bare minimum would be making sure that access to sidewalks uh, approaches on curbs aren't covered by snow and sidewalks aren't covered uh, that's a that's a bare minimum for me um, if I'm dreaming I'd love to see I know places in Europe have started experiment or implementing heated bike paths or sidewalks that are uh, could be covered with solar paneling to uh, to power the whole thing and uh, yeah I, if I'm dreaming I would love to see something like that where even living in a climate with snow isn't necessarily that big of a deal. I mean, even as a pedestrian, like I walk a lot. Mm -hmm. And I mean, right now, the sidewalk's not right here, but in a lot of the side streets are, are just pretty much impassable uh, when you're walking. But mm -hmm. then you look over at the street and it's kind of dry. Like, I think in general, sidewalks could be given more of a priority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this accessibility isn't, just about wheelchair users or one specific group of the disability community it's definitely beneficial to everyone and I think our spaces have been designed with uh, smaller able-bodied single users in mind and uh, we could make our sidewalks and our spaces in general better for people pushing groceries or people worried about falling or people pushing a stroller or older people yeah, yeah, I want to talk about like just when you're out in the pub in public and and you're interacting with people what's that been like for you what's helpful what's not helpful what's been your experience I know last time you said that once or twice when you've been stuck in the intersection in snow people have gotten out of their cars and helped you is that and helped pushed you out does that sort of in general been your experience or uh, yeah, I mean, it's a tricky thing. I guess, yeah, generally, even though I know it's pretty much always well-intentioned, you should never 
put your hands on someone to help them unless it's obvious that they're in a bit of an emergency and need help or if you're specifically asked or you can ask the person if they would like you to help them but I've been pushed from behind without any need or warning oh. just someone uh, even just on a straightaway when I'm enjoying rolling on my own yeah and been surprised by a stranger who is thinking that was appropriate I have is- I don't have abdominal control or function so I have issues with balance so being suddenly pushed from behind is slightly terrifying feeling like I'm falling out of my chair or tipping over and yeah you would you would just never put your hands on you would never push someone who wasn't in a wheelchair uh, so it's just it's just not appropriate but yeah I, I am definitely grateful I have been in situations where I've spilled in the middle of Broadway and been on the street and immediately people were there to help um, so yeah uh, I'm very grateful that people are around to help uh, when I've needed it I think it's helping is always tricky both asking for and receiving uh, and giving help it's I think difficult not to be patronizing through that whole process but yeah if you're willing to respectfully ask and accept a potential no um, I think it's easy to navigate and I think generally people's initial reaction or approach is caution that they're going to say the wrong thing and offend someone and of course you're not going to you might say something that's slightly silly because you don't have the experience, but I, well, personally, I would never be offended if someone's curious and respectful but asks somewhat of a silly question. Uh, I would way, way rather have the opportunity to answer those questions and help people understand than have them shut down before they have a chance to happen. Like you were saying last time, Um, All things are not equal, right, for people who have spinal cord injuries. So much depends on what your financial situation is and whether you have access to private insurance of some sort or workers' compensation. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you're reliant on, I guess, government financial support. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you can expect the bare minimum how should government be looking at this? Yeah, that's a that's a huge question. Yeah. Um, and I, I like to think about it and dream about it, but I it's something I'll continue to think about forever. Um, and hopefully it improves. Um, because for sure our systems of coverage are not equal at all. There's huge inequities between different systems of coverage and also between uh, the provinces and territories in how that coverage is provided or non non-coverage is is there there are huge gaps and lots of people are missed either to fend for themselves or manage with supportive family and friends it's a it's a really difficult situation because the market for the equipment that you might require and and supplies you might require is obviously smaller so prices remain higher Um, and I've become aware that yeah the costs of disability are are very significant and often not really acknowledged or understood even within the budgets that the government's creating for coverage of these needs. With with home care services, I think it's really important to have a at bare minimum an understanding that family members and loved ones can't be equated to caregivers. They can't be forced into care or they shouldn't be forced into caregiving. They may choose to provide care in, in various capacities, but um, if they're forced into it, it's 
a really dangerous line to blur. I think that's when people can lose their jobs and end up with ruined relationships. It's a really difficult thing to navigate. And I think coverage of supplies and equipment should be provided uh, and not not based on a rubric uh, that a government might provide, but matched to a person's lifestyle. Currently, I think coverage of those sorts of things is limited to focusing on allowing someone to exist safely in their own home, and that's it. Even in a consideration, well, a consideration of getting outside the home with recreational uh, equipment or just the ability to get outside isn't there, um, unless you may have private insurance. And I think uh, part of it is our approach to how can we fund these items for individuals, but I think we can get a little more creative with that, because I recognize obviously funding's limited. Um, it's always a barrier, but instead of considering funding equipment for individuals to own, why couldn't we uh, create equipment collectives, equipment pools? Where uh, I mean, those already exist in within community organizations. I know, in, uh, I went to Saskatchewan last summer and got to try out a bunch of recreational equipment, and yeah, like I, I was thinking of an adaptive mountain bike which is exceedingly it's it's like i think the one i was looking at was over 25,000 with oh my god with all the customization yeah. and shipping and everything included but um but if you could purchase whatever a handful or even just one of those items uh and make it accessible through a community organization yeah. i mean no one needs to have their mountain bike sitting in their home all the time if you just have access to it that that kind of gets over that hurdle i think yeah, I think creative ways to acknowledge that funding is limited, limited but still focus on ex- expanding uh, coverage to beyond just remaining in your own home. As we mentioned last time, you're doing, um, you're working on some research around what the policies are in individual provinces and the difference between the policy and the reality on the ground. Is there anything else you can tell us? I know your research is sort of still mid, mid, midway, and you can't really talk about specifics. But is there anything um, else you can tell us about what you're learning as you talk to people from across the country? For sure, I can speak about generalities, and it's not like we weren't expecting this or aware of this. But uh, it's always surprising just hearing it repeated how many inequities there are in accessibility and provision of of uh, medical supplies and equipment between the provinces um, and in some cases yeah just complete even though an item might be defined as medically essential outside of income assistance in some places there are there is no no coverage of items that are still defined as medically essential so even though officially that's what they're called they're not it's not backed up as such for sure public provision of of personal attendant care kind of falls, often falls second to, well, you need to rely on family and friends first, and then we'll kind of come in for the last resort care, um, which I think is a really dangerous approach. If you fit into agency scheduling, if you don't have relatively high care needs, you may fit into the system. Uh, you may The system may work for you, but there are a lot of people who, again, fall into the gaps. And then there, uh, if you're fortunate enough to be wealthy to finance those things on your own, to purchase equipment and maybe privately hire caregivers, that might work for you. If you're fortunate enough to have family and friends who are able and willing to 
provide some forms of care that might work for you. But there, yeah, there are gaps where some people are uh, either just forced to manage on their own, and in some cases, yeah, they're missing services that they are definitely entitled to, but they may just go without, or in some cases are forced into long-term care, institutional care. Right. And even if you do have family and friends that really want to help you out in this way, it's not the ideal solution. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, yeah, it's not ideal at all. I, I don't, I, I don't think it's right. Um, and over time, that support, both parties may realize this it's not isn't, sustainable no. in the long run. Yeah, <clears throat> it's also especially with equipment, even equipment that people are potentially entitled to through public coverage. They often have to have these items and equipment medically justified by a professional, which sometimes really differs from your own individual justification which I think should have a place at the table um, I think equipment should be matched to your lifestyle it shouldn't just be based off some checklist where well and it, again it's just going back to being able to live in your own home safely but yeah I think we can do better than that people don't really realize like and myself included it, it's kind of impossible to imagine all of the barriers and then to understand how the system works and I think people generally assume that we have universal health care we will be covered mm-hmm. um, if something if we undergo a traumatic injury that's okay we'll be taken care of yeah. and uh, yeah I think generally people can be surprised uh, and end up with savings uh, gone um, over time uh, I think it's really important yeah, education is important too. Of of there are gaps in our system. Uh, our coverage of certain things might be limited or non-existent, um, and obviously it's tied to to politics. So I think yeah, it's important that people understand these issues um, so they can use that information when they're when they're voting. Well, hopefully a few people will learn a few things listening to you talking today, Pete. Yeah. You told us last time that getting reconnected to music has been helpful to you. And you want to talk about some of the things you've been doing musically? Yeah, sure. Um, well, yeah, I, I grew up. Uh, both sides of my family were very musical, and singing is, is and was part of, uh, yeah, family, family in general, um, which I really love. Uh, I remember at a family reunion waiting for a photo in the very hot sun in July getting eaten by mosquitoes and somebody I don't remember the hymn actually unfortunately but somebody started singing and instantly there was four part harmony from 150 people and and yeah I, that's I was old enough to suddenly realize oh this is uh, somewhat unique but amazing and wonderful uh, anyway I've really missed being able to play music with other people for often through the last two years. And so I bought the microphone that we're using right now to just do home recording. Uh, And I've picked up a few new instruments. I got a banjo and a a harmonica and a guitar. But yeah, it kind of just grew out of that with people, uh, uh, people hearing a birthday song and then wanting their own version of their birthday song and recording fun little projects and... uh, it's been a, a good project to have, a solo project to have through the winter, for sure. Music's been a, a definitely a, a lifeline for me through 
well, through the past five years. And we are going to end by playing one of your songs. Uh, so do you want to introduce that song? Well, it's a song that I, I recently discovered. Uh, it's called To Live by Nora Jones. I think it's a relatively, relative, I think she released it like it's a home concert through through COVID. So it's a relatively recent song. But yeah, I guess, again, the right context, it just really resonated with me. And uh, I thought it fit the the theme of our interviews. So that's great. Thanks for thanks for that, and thanks so much, Pete, for uh, meeting with me and talking so so honestly and openly and wisely about the, your your uh, situation. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Erica. My pleasure. So I've been talking to Peter Workington. My name's Erica Weed. You've been listening to Afterthought on CKUW ninety five point nine FM. And don't forget, Afterthought is also a podcast now on Spotify and Apple. All our previous shows are there. And here now is Peter Workington with his version of Nora Jones' song, To Live. If love is the answer
answer in front of my face. So live in this moment and find my true place. So live in this moment and find my true place. So. Live